Draw shape. Draw shape. Draw shape. Draw shape. Draw shell. Yes, David. And I just looked at the drawer, and the first thing I see the number one seed on the men's side, the first player um, in the men's singles, is Andre Martin from Slovakia. They've already put a lucky loser in the uh, in the Novak yeah, slot. I think so. That's um, unexpected. Yeah, because his case is still going ahead, and um, it's actually going to go tomorrow, Sydney time, Australian time, 9.30 uh, in the morning tomorrow. So could have it done. And if they have a, a full bench of the court, three judges, then they haven't decided whether it's going to be three judges or one judge. But if it's three judges, the Minister for Immigration can't appeal a decision. So it would be final. So it would leave um, Novak free to play. Interesting. Yeah, but they've put someone else in the drawer in this place. Um, yeah, I really find that weird. I wonder if it's in all the drawers. But this is the official Australian Open site. Yeah, I'm looking at the flash score draw just because I thought they did a nice job presenting it last time I looked, although I'm less impressed right now. Yeah. Um, and they just have a blank spot there. Um, they should really, you know, they should give uh, the the alternate Serbian uh, Ket Ketsmanovic the uh, number one seed, I think. You know, just kind of pass it along. Yeah, right. Well, that is that is certainly the drama du jour. Wait, this is yeah. crazy. Andre Martin lost in the first round of qualifying. That's strange. They don't do that with lucky losers. Lucky losers have to lose in the third round of qualifying, right? Yeah, but I think he's not a... Oh, it's weird. Yeah, maybe he's not a lucky... His ranking is like 116. The tennis podcast was uh, telling a story about how um, they showed up in Melbourne and they went to this three-hour third-round qualifying match between uh, Mikhail Kukushkin and Liam Brody of the UK. Yes. And uh, before the end of the match, uh, they had announced that Liam Brody was, um, was I guess, maybe the first lucky loser. <laughs> like he won the draw or something. Um, I couldn't, no, that doesn't make any sense. It must've been right at the end of the match, but still to grind for three hours and then have the outcome not actually matter is kind of, kind of funny. Yeah. Because you could know by that stage that there's enough injured players and spaces in the draw available and only a few qualifying matches left to play. And if Liam Brody's one of like the highest ranked seeds, you could, you could reliably conclude that he, he would have a spot whether he lost or won the qualifying match yeah right because it goes on the highest seed the highest ranked player um who lost it's not random no it's not random that's interesting the, the first lucky loser spot goes to the highest ranked loser in the last in the final round of qualifying and will descend from there i wonder if it's sometimes better to be a lucky loser because you might take a seeds position exactly it is it is a qualifying spot and you you it's a lot of great spots yeah. I mean, it's not a seeds position. Yeah. But you could get a seeds. Sometimes you go straight into the second round in that case as well, because in tournaments where the seeds don't play the first round, they get a buy. You can be projected straight in to the thick of it, to a second round match. Maybe someday a lucky loser will um, just uh, default their way to the championship or have uh, have opponent retirements and defaults. All the way through. 
so that you have a lucky loser all the way through, like a like a trung trungality championship. That would that would make for a good historical footnote. <clears throat> Speaking of which, uh, Marco Trungalidi won his third round of qualifying against um, oh, Demir Zuma from Bosnia. Yeah, he's a real player. Yeah, um, yeah, he's he's a grinder. He's you know top one hundred player, seated thirty in qualifying. So I feel like this is Trungalidi's limit. He gets like he can beat a good player in the last round of qualifying and get into the first round. <laughs> And then if he gets a really good draw, someone similar to him in the first round, he could, he could maybe make the second round, and that's it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and he's uh, his, he's drawn against Francis Tiafo in the first round, which I I wrote down as a as a first round match to watch. Yeah, absolutely. I went through the draw and kind of tried to you know circle the the interesting matchups. Um, I did find kind of as just as a general note, I didn't find a ton of really intriguing, dramatic first round matchups. It feels like the drama's down the road a little bit, which of course doesn't, you know, doesn't really mean anything. It's not pred predictive of the future, but I was just, you know, you know, not blown away by some of the selections, some of the random selections in the in there. But uh, I was thinking maybe we could start with the women because I do think there's just so much more possibility in that draw i mean this has been the case for years now and it's borne out in the results and you know the number of um different champions we've had on the you know at this level on the women's side yeah. in recent years like uh, a definite popcorn match potentially um is sloan stevens and emma raducanu in the first round oh yeah wow yeah i love that two u.s open champions that sounds that's funny <laughs> um I was not the first thing I thought of when you said that, but it's true. What What was the first thing that you thought of? Um, I thought of Radicanu on the decline and Sloane Stevens trying to find her way back to the top. Yeah, Sloane Stevens had a she had a few break breakthrough again performances last year, as I recall. Yeah, I feel like she had a good run at the U.S. Open, maybe to the fourth round. Um, yeah, and the whole thing with her is that she just she looks brilliant when she's on. And when she's off, it's like it's a total disaster. So, well, if they're both on, if Radicani's playing the way she did it last year, if they're both playing the way they did it last year's year, something that that would be great for sure. But it is right now. Uh, I would pick Stevens in a heartbeat in that match after Radicani lost eleven one to uh, Elena Rabakina yeah. in uh, the event in Sydney. Um, but Radicani's results have been poor since the cool. US Open which is striking. Yeah, she's won agreed. I think 3 matches and I don't think about against anybody remotely noteworthy. Yeah, agreed. If she keeps on going this way, she'll her ranking will drop at and next year's US Open when she loses those 1000 points for winning it. Um she won't she won't have many points left. Yeah. But she's young. She's young and she's got plenty of time like no like I'm not her like jumping on the why are you performing Emma bandwagon as um some people like to do because she's so young and there's you look at some statistic like how many tournaments you know all of these great players like the williams sisters and and others how many grand slams did they play before they actually won one yeah uh, like in the case of venus williams it was quite a few and you know emma was playing her second one when she won it so she's got plenty of time yeah for sure 
it's it's just like everything feels like it's on this hyper accelerated timeline now where we're jumping to conclusions based on limited sample size. I mean, it's still I, I sometimes forget that Raducanu won through qualifiers without dropping a set all the way to a championship. So no matter what the competition, that's just an absurd thing to do to win 10 matches in a row without dropping a set at the pro level. And and she did play some good competition. I don't think she played the, you know, anybody in the top 10, but but right, it, it's just the the dramatic fall off. I mean, she obviously has the talent and something, you know, for it to go that far sideways that fast. But who knows? We you know, she could come out and beat Stevens and get on a little run and suddenly it's it's game on again. It is her first slam since, so we'll have to reserve judgment. I mean, I don't know. I mean, personally, I would, I'd like to see Sloan win that, but, uh, you know, it'd be, it would be equally interesting to see uh, Emma kind of get, get through this particular hurdle and show that she's still got, you know, she's still got some competitive juice in the tank. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it has been dramatic. It's, and it's... um. It's it's interesting to see what she does. Every every match she plays is interesting in now. That's that's what she's gonna to bring to the um Slam Stevens match. What else do you like? Yeah, so um so just starting like you know, going quarter by quarter, right? So the uh, the top quarter where Ash Barty's the number one seed, um, seems really top heavy. You, we potentially have fourth round matchups, you know, if if, if it held to form between Barty and Osaka and then Ons Jabur and Maria Sakari. That is a tasty quarter. Wow. Yeah. Osaka Bardi in particular is interesting. You know, again, like with our short-term memories, it's easy to forget that Osaka won the tournament last year. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't long ago. You know, she kind of, wow. she had the whole walkabout and everything, but, you know, Bardi might be too tough right now, but that is, that's final worthy matchup in the fourth round potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And even that's no given. There are good players, you know, in that quarter. Camila Georgi won a, you know, won a premier mandatory event late last year. Belinda Bencic is in, is in there. I was watching her play Paula Bedosa uh, this week for a little bit. And, you know, she, she really pushed Bedosa, who's been red hot. You've got Amanda Anisimova unseated. So just in that 16th, in that, that little segment of the draw, you've got all kinds of intrigue. And yeah, I think I think on the other side though, um, Sakari, Sakari might have to play Kudermatova to get to the round of sixteen. Jabur might have to play Pagula, um, the the queen of NFTs. I feel like that would be a safe bet that that Jabur and Sakari are gonna are gonna end up in a showdown. That that would be uh, Al's girl and your girl, tete a tete. Yes, Jabur and Sakari. I love them both. Yeah. I love them both too, but I, I love Jibber more. And uh, yeah, and then the so the winner of Osaka Barty plays the winner of Jibber and Sakari in yes. the quarters. Is that right? Yep. That's a crazy quarterfinal. Whoever of those four playing that quarter, it's great. I love that. Essentially, yes. you've got the champion there. Whether it can come through Barty, it's like Barty has to be the form player. Although, you know, all of those players, I just, you know, that's why it's so good. They all have the potential to win it. Maybe Jabur, I love how crafty she is. She doesn't maybe have the raw power of Asaka and Sakari. And she doesn't have the consistency quite of body. But when she's on, when she's playing uh, her spin spin shots or moving a, an opponent all around the court, playing cat and mouse, she's very, very good to watch. 
Yeah, I think she's somebody who seems to struggle with the the highest end players, you know, and especially that high end uh, velocity. But yeah, if she's got it going on, she can do basically anything from anywhere. And um, I have trouble seeing her getting through this section. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like looking at the other sections, I mean, there's there's obvious there's a dozen players who could win the tournament, and I wouldn't be shocked. But I feel like this is the section where somebody coming through might be the favorite. Certainly, Barty or Osaka. I think where if if the, one of those two make it through, I think they're they're probably strong favorites. And then you know, moving to the second quarter, we have the, the top two seeds are uh, Krajikova and Bedosa. And I don't know what kind of form Krajikova is in. I know she made a run at one of these run up tournaments. Oh, well, she's um, in the final of Sydney. She's in the final, so yeah, perpetually under the radar. Bedosa also. Bedosa's, I think, playing her in the. Oh, ah, yeah. Okay. So you could. So this could be a preview of a quarterfinal right now in Sydney. Okay, that's pretty exciting. Oh, on the same surface as well. So they're in Melbourne, or they're uh, in Sydney. They're in Sydney, but I think it's pretty much the same. Hard, hard court. Yeah, they just they just take the hard court and attach it to a helicopter and bring it down to Melbourne Park. Yeah. Yep. Uh, by the way, I was hearing about that Melbourne Park, they added a new stadium and uh, apparently it's spectacular. It's like the the next stadium down from Margaret Court, like in terms of size. I think it's in, you know how there's like, uh, you know, show courts two and three. Um, yeah, two and three. And the show court two always gets like a different sponsor. So it's like 1873 yeah. liquor. Yeah, court. And then the court three never has a name. It's just always court three. But yeah. Yeah, those two. So there's going to be a bigger court than court two and three. Yes, but, but also smaller like, than Margaret Court. Right. So it's like outdoor, intimate stadium vibe. I think it's in the corner. You know how like you come out of Margaret Court Arena and then there's a uh, sponsored court two like right behind it. I think like towards Batman Avenue, um, there was like a construction zone, I remember. And I think that is where the new arena is. So that's pretty awesome. I mean, just... I feel like they kind of ruined court three a little bit unintentionally. Maybe they've addressed it, but they, they put up all these, um, all these shades, you know, because, um, the sun is, uh, deadly in Australia and I'm sure people like to sit in the shade, even though I'm a, I'm a glutton for punishment out there personally. But anyway, they put, they put those shades up and it just created this like reflective audio zone. So when you're sitting in that arena, you just hear, cause it's kind of in the center of the grounds, there's people all around you. Yeah, the people's court, we call. Yeah, right. They tend to put Aussies out there a lot, and it gets rowdy. Yeah, but it's also like so noisy, you it's hard to concentrate on the match. Um, and it didn't used to be like that. That's actually that's where we all met. That's where we saw um, we did Francis TFO uh, on that court playing Andreas um, Seppi. Yeah, in the golden in the golden era of uh, pre-COVID Australian Open. Man, I can't wait to go back. Just hearing about that new court, it's like, I want to be there. I hope I can make it next year, but um, I have a feeling there's going to be some life stuff going on that it might might make it impossible, but we'll see. One um, day we shouldn't meet again on court three, dude. That's right. I'll sit in the same seat. Every year I'll sit in the same seat round two, you know, third, ma- third match, and I'll wait. On the first day of round two. <laughs> On court three, which is court three, is a magical number. I think that's that, and and there's three of us in, on the tennis tragic. Ah, yes, that's true. It yes, was, it was meant to be. That's right. It was a it was a faded moment. 
the uh, Tennis Podcast Hall of Fame historians will uh, revisit this historical moment through, re you know, dramatic recreations and uh, perhaps some stage play performances. Yeah, well, I was thinking of Macbeth, actually, because there's the new Denzel Washington film by the Coen brothers where um, Washington plays Macbeth. Oh, and yeah, I saw the, a trailer you know, for this, it. It looks wild. Oh, it is wild. Go and see it. I saw it. Um, ah, cool. I, I, I loved it. Um, anyway, there's three witches that prophesize will be Thane of Clamps, which he already is, Thane of Cordor, and then King of Scotland. Mm. Novak last year was proclaimed King of Melbourne Park. Mm. And now, look at him. Right. Dramatic Australian Open COVID-related immigration minister-related play, anybody? Right. That's what I'm saying. Dramatic readings? We need to pull it together. Yeah, we need to get some court transcripts, you know, and like really... I wonder if Djokovic... Do you know if Djokovic had to make any statements himself or is his lawyer speaking for him entirely? Um, I haven't heard anything. We can have a, have a look. I, I do have a, a pretty great press release from the Refugee Action Coalition, which the title is um, a Morrison Double Faults on Djokovic Viva or something like that. Can I read it to you? Sure. Yeah, do it. I love that. I think they're having a lot of fun with the tennis analogy and also just the extra press. Djokovic Visa Cancellation. Oh, yeah. Sorry. The title is Morrison Double Faults. Djokovic visa cancellation, first time theatre, second time farce. The government move to cancel Djokovic's <laughs> visa is sheer political farce. Immigration Minister Alex Hawke claims that Djokovic's visa has been cancelled on health and good order grounds on the basis that it was in the public interest to do so. Does not pass the pub test. You know the pub test? No, what's the pub test? It's like, what would a normal person in the pub think about? Oh, sure. Whatever political, you know, does it pass the pub test? With Omicron cases skyrocketing across Australia, Djokovic, who has tested negative for COVID, cannot credibly claim that he is a health risk. Morrison has changed the COVID rules so that COVID-positive workers can be forced to work, but a COVID-negative tennis player can't play tennis. He may have recklessly appeared in public in Serbia when he was COVID positive, but stupidity is not a ground for cancellation. And the cancellation has got nothing to do with good order or the public interest, and everything to do with Morrison and the government trying to save political face. This is straight out vindictiveness and political opportunism. Morrison is gambling that the decision to cancel will help stop him falling even further behind in the opinion polls said Ian Rintoul, spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition. Morrison has pursued Djokovic in the same way he pursued the, Medi the Medivac refugees, medical evacuation refugees, um, in 2019. Morrison swore to overturn the Medivac legislation after he was defeated on the floor of Parliament. 192 refugees were brought to Australia under the legislation, but the government used its power to punish them and prevent them getting medical treatment after they were transferred, said Rintoul. The minister could use his godlike powers to release the refugees, but Morrison was determined to thwart the medevac legislation in the same way the minister was determined to thwart the court's first ruling in Djokovic's case. 
Around 60 people are still being tortured by the government in hotel prisons and detention centers more than two years after they were transferred. And almost nine years, including off offshore detention, just because they can. The minister's decision to cancel Djokovic's visa would be a sideshow if it was just between Scotty from marketing looking for headlines and a celebrity <laughs> tennis player. But the government is power drunk. The decision may cost Djokovic the Australian Open, but refugees are paying with their lives. The government has failed the character test. Its absolute power to detain has corrupted them absolutely. Yeah, right on. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's a really, I think it's an apt analysis. I think, um, I think the whole thing makes the Australian government look like a joke. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's an irony in the fact that, you know, one of the reasons the government is seeking to deport Djokovic is because he's giving life to anti-vax ideas, right? Like it's, oh, that's the, you know, that's the excuse, isn't it? That, uh, yeah, that was the last reason they gave. It will incite anti-vax protesters if we let Djokovic stay. Right. But the whole drama, I think, has just you know, embolden people who feel that way in the first place, because it's a reminder of how, you know, like how the rules are unfair and how people who have made de the decision to not get vaccinated or treated as second class citizens. It's interesting what was what was said in there about how workers may still be maybe obligated to show up uh, for work while they're positive. Right. How is that working? Well, see, this is the thing, David, like, uh, the whole, it's true the Djokovic case is a sideshow and it's a distraction from far more important things that are happening domestically for us. Yeah. So we've, we've got hospital shortages, ambulance shortages, and we're at the point where we don't have enough workers to keep like supply of basic goods, you know, going, you know, on the supermarket shelves and all of that. So, right. So what they've said is if you're an essential worker. And you might be close contact and you can't get a rat test or maybe just go to work anyway. And he, in some cases, because you can't get a rat test, that's the issue. It's not Djokovic, right. which isn't the issue. It's that the government has completely under-resourced our health and testing systems. And right. um, nurses are being asked to work if they're COVID positive, but asymptomatic because such wow. as the such as the crisis in the public healthcare system. So what Morrison is saying is it's our borders. He's distracting from all of this. His big right. statement yesterday when they overturned Djokovic's court ruling was Australia's strong borders are the thing that has kept us safe during the pandemic and kept our yeah. case numbers low. And this is right. why we must go hard on Djokovic here. But that's not... True. It's not, it hasn't been borders that have kept us safe. It's, uh, you know, like the, the virus knows no borders. Well, um, you could, you could argue that it, the borders, the border control, the rigid border lockdowns, uh, and interstate lockdowns and the lockdowns in general did prevent the virus from rampaging in its earlier phases. Um, and therefore a lot of lives were saved. But it doesn't, if you're really looking at the actual state of things right now, where the caseload is high, and obviously even though Omicron is less 
severe, you you have hospitalizations and deaths happening, and there's really no recourse at this point. You can't see, there's no way to obligate the remainder of the population to get vaccinated. It's not clear that it would make a huge difference in terms of overall numbers. But this goes back to the pub test. It doesn't pass the pub test. The notion that we get it, that not allowing of an unvaccinated person into the country does anything for the health and safety of Australians. No, it's political theater. Yeah. And, and what you're saying is like, that I think is really important is that there are like an effective functional government does the nuts and bolts work of making sure it's citizens. Like gets rat tests for everybody. Get the tests, right. So that they, so that our essential workers aren't showing up COVID positive. They get, uh, they get the vaccines on time, which was another big boondoggle during this whole thing, right? Like Australia's locked down longer than most of the Western world. And yet. But they didn't use that time to, to get vaccines and get that all rough and running. Right. I mean, now, now we've, we've done well now, like we like people who got vaccinated. Yeah, and um, I think like I think if you look at the numbers, like the the relative, you know, percentage of death and hospitalization is significantly lower than in other parts of the world where it is where vaccination is not as high. And I think it's a really clear example of the effectiveness of vaccination. But yeah. none of this is relevant in the Djokovic case. It has nothing to do with the with whether no, or not there's it's a there's distraction. A real, it's a distraction yeah. from those things that you said, like the nuts and bolts things that the government should do. Because all this time, and we have been, you know, like, you know, he's been facing tough questions, Morrison. All of this time, if the Djokovic thing wasn't there, he would have been getting more and more slammed over where are the rat tests, why, why are COVID positive people having to work, why are you resourcing the healthcare system, what's your plans for improving this situation, which he has none. He has no plan. But because the world's media has been focused on the Djokovic case, it's let him off the hook for a while and made him appear like he's doing something for COVID. Yeah. Yeah. It's all absurd. I, I was mentioning earlier that, um, Darren Cahill had a tweet where he was, you know, he, he pretty succinctly represented this, this perspective that I do agree with, which is that if there's going to be a requirement at all, it should have been a strict requirement. Why in the world did the Australian open have the right to grant exemptions? It should have just been a hard rule. You, if you are not vaccinated, you're not coming to the country and then there would be no ambiguity and then there would be, you know, none of this stuff would have happened. But right, it's almost like it almost feels like they wanted it to. They wanted to make a show of it. They knew that Djokovic was coming and they were ready for him. And it's just an embarrassment and and a distraction. And, it, and you know, here we are, one quarter of one draw into our draw show. And we're still, the Djokovic issue just casts a shadow on everything else. It's the major story. But it is, you know, I I love this shit in sport because it is often the case that sport, you know, kind of casts a cultural shadow on what's going on in the world around us, you know, and like the fact that Novak is just at the center of the storm is, you know, I mean, it's it's particularly relevant because he is the number one player in the world because he is a nine-time champion at Melbourne Park. He's the king of hard. But, right, it just, it just gets into all these issues of personal liberty and border control and refugee rights. And, yeah, it's, it's fascinating overall, like, just to look at it dispassionately and, and you know, just from a kind of removed perspective. I hope it's resolved soon, though, because I kind of want to focus on the tennis personally, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope it is, but I also 
you know, my strategic political mind as as an activist hopes that mm. the refugee movement, like as you know, we can connect, keep connecting this as much as possible. Because after Djokovic has right. gone home and all the tennis players have gone home, we're it still going to have this awful government, you know, locking up these refugees. And as was mentioned in the press release, it's nine years for some of these refugees. They've just been in limbo. People being born in detention, like, and they haven't done anything wrong. They come to Australia in detention. And I think that gives you a little window into the mentality of the Australian government when it comes to immigration. Like, we've got a you know, a right-wing liberal government, liberal in the party name, not liberal with politics. And uh, they do use these discretionary powers to appear strong on borders. And Novak, this is just a little taste of the ugliness um, that characterizes Australian immigration politics, you know, and yeah. has done since we since Federation. Because of um, you know, things like the white Australia policy and our treatment of Aboriginal people and being this colonial outpost for Britain, not sort of characterizing our national identity and um, consequently the racism. So, yes, um, uh, Christopher Clary, the, the um, tennis writer, was saying on Radio National here that he does wish that we could focus on the tennis a bit more and that, you know, like qualifying and other tournaments, normally there'd be a bit of press for those players and, you know, a bit of excitement, but everything is just focused on the Djokovic case. Yeah. I mean, as much as I, you know, there's that the drama loving part of me wants to see him play because I just think he'll make the tournament more interesting. I'm a little bit concerned at this point, if he does play, what the crowd reaction will be like. Oh, it'd be crazy. You know, and how, how, how violent and nasty it could potentially get. Yeah, and that, and, and there was already negative Djokovic sentiment, but it wasn't, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wasn't too bad. But now, you know, there is a media campaign to turn him into the enemy. Yeah, and especially, and it's coming right from the top. It's coming from the Prime Minister of Australia, turning Djokovic into public enemy number one, so as to distract, to distract the public from who the real enemy is, and people and the media, and there's plenty of. Ordinary people lapping it up. So you're right. If he does play, there could be some real nastiness directed yep. at Novak. And I almost feel like the the respectable thing for him to do right now is to to pack it up and go home. And you know, but I I feel like one of the aspects of Novak is that he's so uncompromising and so stubborn, and it's reflected in his play, and you know, his just unwillingness to ever give an inch. You know, uh, Tsitsipas made uh, headlines um, because, you know, he, he, he was talking about how he felt like Novak is somebody who feels like he can play by his own rules, you know, that he's not necessarily subject to the rules of other people, you know, like there's this sort of this attitude of superiority in, in the way he's approached this whole thing. You know, you get, I, I disagree when people say like, well, Novak, this is all Novak's fault because all he had to do to fix it was to get vaccinated. To be clear, he should have gotten fucking vaccinated. I think it's stupid not to, frankly, uh, full stop. But stupidity isn't a crime. You know, the fact of the matter is the Australian government made the policy and opened the door for Tennis Australia and Victoria to create this exemption by which he thought he could come in. He was granted a visa into the, into the country only to have it revoked at the border. 
this is like classic ineptitude. And I think the Australian government is ultimately responsible for it. If they didn't want him in the country, they should have blocked him from ever getting a visa. All of this information was already known. So, yeah. Um, should we talk about um, Sophia Cannon? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was trying to find a, a, a player who would be an adequate uh, segue, but there, there really is. It's like... It's it's a jarring kind of switch, right? It's like, man, all there's all these layers to unpack in this drama, and then we could talk about Paula Bedosa or Victoria Azarenka. You know me, David. Like I, I you know I could talk about this stuff all day, and I just for me it's the yeah. point as well. Like I like tennis, and but it all you know at the end of the day, it can never be viewed in isolation, right? But having said that. Who is Sophia Kennan playing in the first round of the uh, I think she's in trouble because she's playing Madison Keys, who uh, who also had a had a strong run this week. I think she might she might also be in a final. Everybody's in a final right now. I think she might be in the final of Adelaide too. Yeah, and who's she playing? She's playing Allison Risk in an All American final, but she beat Coco Goff in the semi and Samsonova in the quarter. So uh, she beat Svitolina in the first round, which is a tough matchup. So Madison Keys is no joke. So for all of the um, the excitement about Kennan coming back and looking a little bit stronger, uh, that is a tough first round matchup for a seeded player in any circumstance. And I think Kennan might not have enough juice right now to get through it. And uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the higher, you know, the other seeds in that that part of the draw, we have Azarenka, Svitolina, Coco Goff. Ostapenko, Krajikova, um, quite a few players who who could go on a run here. You know, and those are just seeded players, right? Like we could, you know, you could go a level deeper and um, you know, Ali Risk has had a lot of success on fast courts. You know, she's a she's a great grass player. Um, I think she's had some success at the AO. She's playing Donna Vekic in the first round. Um who seems like she's only about a year removed from from being at career peak form. I don't know what happened at Vekic. Krajikova and Bedosa in that quarter. I feel like that is, you know, Bedosa's form coming in. I feel like she's got a real, real shot to get to a semi. Yeah, um, I, and I, I do like Krajikova as well, based on form, and she could she could do something. But Petkovic in the first round for her is tough. I feel like Petkovic has been playing well. Has she? Yeah, yeah, I mean Petkovic has been around forever, and uh, you know she's certainly had her moments. She's she's no no pushover, um, but if yeah, I feel like Krajikova's form uh, should should be plenty to get get her through that match. Yeah, some fun stuff in there. Anything else catching your eye in that in that particular quarter? So we're looking at probably Spitalina and Azarenka in the third round. Yep, Austin, that could Austin. be interesting. Yeah. Although Jill Teichman's a good player. You got Yulia Putinseva in there and on Svitolina's side. So uh there's some some upset potential. But uh yeah, it might be nice. It would be nice to see uh Vika get through to a fourth round. Uh Vika against Krajikova would be pretty interesting to watch, I think. Could we have Kennan playing Coco Goff in the third round as well? Yeah, if she can get through keys, uh I definitely think she would win that second round matchup. Looks like two qualifiers. Yeah, Goff, uh, Goff getting to a semifinal. Still kind of seeming like she could be on the verge of that breakthrough, but not having taken the step. 
You were saying earlier how, you know, a lot of players, it takes, takes time for them to really, you know, break through. You know, we, we have these high expectations of uh, some of these young players. You know, I, was, I was looking at the comparative uh, careers of, uh, of the Prince of Darkness and uh, Stefano Tsitsipas. You know, like, I feel like, St I mean, Steph's got the injury and, you know, it's, it's unclear, you know, like what kind of form he's coming in on. And Zverev, it feels like, oh, he's knocking at the door, right? And, you know, like, it's, it seems like it's finally happening. Zverev's only been on tour for two more years than Steph. And I think, like, they've been in the same number of slam finals. Tsitsipas has made the semifinals at the AO twice. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like, that, you know, if you look, if you look back just a couple years, Zverev wasn't, you know, wasn't going deep. He had only gotten to one quarterfinal in his first five years. And now it's like regular, I think five or six out of the last um, eight slams, he got to the quarters or better. And uh, Steph not far behind. And also, and Steph's two years younger. He's 23 years old. So I don't know. It feels like on the women's side, though, there's still like, you know, we get these teenage or, or you know, very early 20, 20 year old uh, types breaking through. And um, on the men's side, that just doesn't that just doesn't feel like it's happening. You know, we'll we'll get to the men. But, it, you know, I look at the men's draw and I'm just like, I don't know who's beating the top guys. I just I just don't see it, you know. Yeah. And over five sets in a grand slam, it's I think it reduces a little bit. That's um, right. Yeah, good point. It's a big separator. I mean, does allow, yeah. And I think even fitness as well. If you're playing week to week, winning week to week, you got more money as well. You got more money to spend on your health and your team. Just doing all the little right things, which maybe, you know, so you're winning more, your match fitness is better, got more resources. Um, and then over five sets to, you know, for someone to upset. They really need to be doing everything right and be having the best possible day to beat you. But yeah, another thing else I love in that quarter, David, is so the possibility of Soribes Tormo. Yes, well said. Sara Soribes Tormo playing in the third round against Pablo Bolsa. Oh, yeah. All Spanish showdown. I feel like they met at the US Open, maybe? And Bedosa crushed her, or no, no, no. Cerebus Tormo got crushed by Raducanu. It was like everybody felt like, ah, Cerebus Tormo is really, really coming on strong. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting that she's seated. Um, she's she's cracked into the seating uh, at number thirty-two. Yeah. Yep. So she's um, doing all right. Yeah, that could be a, that could be a tasty third round matchup for sure. So then we go into the Contevit quarter. Yeah, Kantavate and Muguruza. Muguruza is the, the higher seat there. But Kantavate had a ridiculously strong finish to her season, you know, culminating with like, you know, she got to the, the final match of the WTA finals. Yeah, I feel like, you know, you once again, you just like can walk down that that section and, and like, I mean, Kantavate's first round matchup against Siniakova is not an easy one. Not easy. Clara Towson in the second round, potentially, who's been much ballyhooed. You've got uh, in the in the next two matches, you got Shelby Rogers and Danielle Rose Collins potentially colliding in the second round. You know, any one of these players you could imagine getting through to a quarter. Yeah, we got Elise Mertens and uh, Elena Rabakina. Um, some some tough players. Golia Bitch. Uh, Molly and I watched a, a Golia Bitch 
match um, last week. Who was she playing? She was playing somebody we were rooting for. Maybe it was Sakari. And uh, Golubich has got the one-handed backhand, one of the few women on tour. Oh, does she? Oh, she was playing Simona Halep. And uh, she looked great. He's also in his quarter. Yes, uh, but uh, in the other half of the quarter. Right. Yeah. Golubich and Rabakina could play in the second round. That is correct. Yeah. Rabakina's tough, tough business. So uh, I feel like she's probably going to get through that match. But... Um, yeah, the depth is striking. Um, Halep, right. Halep, Raducanu, or Stevens in the third round, potentially. Yeah. That's pretty exciting. And then, you know, for her to potentially show down with Muguruza in the fourth would be would be some serious fireworks as well. So, You're right. This is much more exciting. Well, I haven't looked at the men's yet, but there are so many players that you feel on their day could make a run. Right, and it, you know... I think we always fall into that trap of uh, recency bias. You know, it's like, oh, Annette Contevate was so strong coming in. You know, on the on the men's side, you know, you've got like Andy Murray in a final all of a sudden. It, I feel like there's this thing that happens where players who do really well in that week, in the tournaments in the week directly before, often kind of, you know, flame out early. So it'll be interesting to kind of watch that. I feel like a little bit of rest is good. You know, Barty decided to sit out the, the Sydney tournament this week which i think was wise you know after winning a tournament the week before in both singles and doubles so she did play a lot of tennis yeah <laughs> that's right yeah she's like i think i've got my reps in i think i'll rest for a little bit which seems like the the way to go so so we'll see what happens but um right yeah somebody could just get hot you know Iga Sviantek is one of the top two seeds in the fourth quarter of the women's draw along with um elena sabalenka um Elena. Arena. Arena Sabalenka. So Will we see her on will will we rename it Rod Laver Arena or maybe I'm kind of need a pun there. If Arena Sabalenka had the status that Rod Laver has in Australia, maybe they would have renamed the court Arena Arena. Arena Arena or Sabalenka Arena? Arena Sabalenka Arena. Arena, Sabalenka, Arena. <laughs> yeah, we really should be thinking more about, um, you know, putting players' names on stadiums. Um, I feel like that should almost be like, it's like a, like a tournament win condition or something. Like instead of winning a trophy, you win, you know. Name, like you and your, then someone has to take the name. name off the, the court. <laughs> that's right, Rip yeah. Rip down your name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. During the, the post- uh, tournament you know the champion ceremony they just like have you know some uh they, they bring out like a wrecking ball and smash the you know the the statue they've erected in your honor yeah re, you know carve in a new a new likeness that would be exciting yeah like like they did with stalin's statue <laughs> yeah when that's the, right they, they just bring out some ropes and <laughs> You know, a Humvee comes in and they just like strap it to the statue and just like pull down the side of the building. Nice. Yeah, that would be good. Um, what else is going on in that corner? That quarter's got uh, Fernandez and Kerber potentially matching up in the third round. Yeah. And uh, whoever gets through that would face Sabalenka potentially. Kerber and Pavu Cengiva both um, playing well. 
Yeah, I think there's a p- potential for Kerber to get upset in the first round, though, because she's playing Kaya Kanepi, who's like the classic spoiler on the women's side. It feels right. like Kaya Kanepi exists to defeat seeded players in the first round. It's like her specialty. I think and... the, tennis, the tennis podcast might have said something about this. I think they think it's, as you do, David, she's got this reputation. Yeah, it just seems to happen over and over again. You're like... I never, I feel like I don't even see Kaya Kanepi's name in other tournaments. And then she just pops up in the first round and like takes out Simona Halep or something, you know? I like the draw for Layla Fernandez. She will play either Kanepi or Kerba in the third round. But in the meantime, she's got Monica Inglis, the Australian wildcard, who she should defeat. Oh, yeah. And then she's got. Um, Garcia or Baptiste in the second yep. round. So Garcia is a good player. I don't know too much about Baptiste. She came to qualifying. But those are winnable matches. And then third round, well, it could be worse. Could be worse than Kerber or Kanepi. And then who would, because, you know, I'd love to see her go on a, another run like she did at the US Open. Who would she play in the fourth round? Layla? Yeah. She would play Kvitova maybe or. Or Swantek. Is that right? Uh, no, she's on the bottom side. So it would be Sabalenka or Vondrusheva or Samsonova potentially, but probably Sabalenka. I think Sabalenka's right, yeah. got that section pretty locked down. So yeah, I mean, Fernandez, Layla did defeat uh, Angie Kerber at the US Open. And she um, rematch. And she defeated Arena Sabalenka Arena. So. There's kind of some shades, some memories here, and also some opportunities for revenge. Oh, she did too in the semifinals. In the semifinals, yeah. What a great match that was. Gosh. Uh, I hope she gets on a roll again. Um, I feel like her results have been okay since the U.S. Open. I mean, she got beaten in Adelaide pretty badly by Sviantec, uh after beating Alexandrova. She got to the third round at Indian Wells, lost to Shelby Rogers in a third set tie break. There hasn't been that much play, right? So, um, yeah, very that'll be exciting to watch for, for sure. I have to point out in this bottom quarter as well that Sam Stosa is playing her last in singles match. Well, potentially. Oh, if she yeah. I heard um, about that. Who's she playing? I kind of, I must have overlooked it because I don't even... It, her name doesn't she's, register to me anymore. She's playing another wild card. She's a wild card. She needed yeah. a wild card. And she's playing the American wild card, Robin Anderson. Oh, I've never heard of that person. She's she's won, she's ranked 172 and she's from Long Branch, New Jersey. And she's 28. So, wow, that's a real, that's amazing. Uh, 28-year-old, we've never heard of her. She, presumably, she's been knocking around, you know, um, outside of the WTA tournaments and playing ITF tournaments all this time. And it was... Yeah. And, and, oh, look, and Sam Stozer is a winnable match because Sam Stozer is not the same. She's a good doubles player, but she is not the singles player she used to be. That's true, um, for sure. Yeah, like I'm trying to think, how, where did this Robin Anderson come from? I'm uh, trying to find stats on her. Um, she played, uh, she won the Dow Tennis Classic in Midland, Michigan, in November. I wonder if that was like a qualifying event or something. And she beat uh, Madison Brangle, Katie McNally, uh, Tatiana Maria on the way to that championship. Oh, no, she didn't win the championship. She lost to Brangle. 
My bad. She's only ever made ITF finals. So she's 28. She played college tennis with U, uh, with UCLA and she, she won some awards as the best collegiate female tennis player in 2014. Um, so she was a good college player, but she's only ever got up to number 159 in the world. Yeah. Right. So maybe, I think she, so I reckon she played four years of college, which is a lot longer than most people. So she, she, a lot of pros go straight into playing tournaments. So maybe it's a different route. She's only ever made qualifying. She's never even made it into the third round of qualifying in any of the Grand Slams. But she has been playing qualifying tournaments since at least 2016. And this is a first ever first round. And it's, an, it's interesting that the, the Australian Open gave her the wild card because they obviously have that reciprocal relationship and it's one US player gets the wild card right. in that reciprocal relationship and to choose I mean I think it's a great choice yeah there must be a yeah there must be a story about why it's her after all this time and uh, yeah that'll be an interesting one to watch I wonder will they put Sam Stozer on uh, on a major court yes they will they'll, they'll probably put her on a decent court I mean yeah, maybe not Rod Laver, but... Maybe Margaret Court or maybe that new court. Yeah. Or Court 2. I don't think, you know, Court... It would definitely at least be on Court 3. That would be the worst it could be. Or the uh, the court formerly known as High Sense Arena slash Melbourne Arena, which I think they renamed again. I don't, I don't like that court. No, I don't either, but it, it is... It's big and, you know... Forget about that court, because it doesn't even seem like it's part of the tournament. It's right over the other side. Yeah, totally. It just has nothing to do with all the other courts. It's, it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's like, it's a concert arena, you know, turned into a makeshift tennis stadium. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to, if they're planning on uh, making it obsolete with the introduction of the Kia Arena. But, yeah, I'm predicting that they put this one on the, the new Kia Arena, because... It's like big enough and special enough to, you know, to really pack the crowd in. Because I think even though it's Sam Stozer's last match, I kind of don't imagine that um, that gigantic uh, cavernous high sense arena place is going to get totally packed in the first round for a Sam Stozer match. Um, no. So they want to. They I think if they're if they're trying to you know kind of show their their respect and gratitude, they'll put her on a court where it'll. It'll be properly full. And also because it's a, you know, it's a show court, anybody can walk in, you know, Margaret Court Arena or um, uh, what are we calling it? Ivan Gulagong. Ivan Gulagong Arena. Um, yeah, the, you know, there's the problem in there in the early rounds, which is that people buy tickets, but there's, there's typically more interesting matches on the ground. So it, it's always like quarter filled in the early rounds. All right. Well, um, yeah, let's let's look out for that one. That's that's uh, on my radar now. Roman yeah. Anderson withstands Sam Stoser, and they'll play the winner of probably Pavlyuchenkova, or it could be um, Hungarian player Anna Bod Bondar. Anna Bondar. Hmm. All right. So that's the women. Right. Let's let's talk about the men. So I guess in the semifinals we're gonna have Novak Djokovic. Uh, Rafa Nadal. So I was totally wrong about Andre Martin. Please. <laughs> I think I was looking at a different, I was like maybe 2001 draw, but. Oh, that's funny. 
it's still like, why was he, did the first seed pull out of last year's tournament? I don't know. Was he the, maybe he was the first seed in qualifiers and like the, the, ah. it carried that through. Okay. Oh, maybe it was the qualifier draw. I was looking at the qualifier draw, Robin Haas. That makes sense. Yeah, he lost to Robin Haas. And that was actually Kukushkin who ended up coming through that quarter for qualifying. Aha. Uh -huh. We've got a Kukushkin-Tommy Paul first round match. So if, if Djokovic doesn't play, it opens up that quarter big time. I mean, Berrettini's the second highest seed. Um, but Guillermo Fis was like staring at another Novak embarrassment in the fourth round. Um, well, he still is, you know, he, he could still end up playing. But Monfils, is, Monfils just won a title. He's been playing great all of a sudden. So there's like a real opportunity there for, you know, without Novak, somebody like Gael Monfils, uh, Berrettini, or Carlos Alcaraz to get through to a semi. Um, how do you feel about Carlos Alcaraz, Matt? Um, look, I don't know much about him. I mean, I've seen him play, I've seen him, you know, you know with those big ground strokes. I don't mind him. I think he's a young, exciting, powerful player. Yeah. I don't like him and I don't, I don't know why exactly. I feel like there's this combination of like the overcharged hype train, you know, people talking already about how he's going to be winning slams and, you know, it's not unlike what happened with Sasha Zverev a few years back. Yeah. Okay. So he, he sort of touted as, you know, the, the next rapper, right? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And he looks, he's a bruiser. He's Spanish. You know, I mean, the, the sort of the, the comparisons are right there. I mean, you know, he had that huge win against Tsitsipas in the third round of the U.S. Open this year um, in five sets. And I think he followed it up with a win, but then it kind of ran out of gas. I mean, he looks like a legitimate player, no question. But, you know, anytime somebody kind of is that young and breaks through on the men's side, I don't think like, oh, it's necessarily going to happen. Like, you know. For every Zverev or Tsitsipas, you've got Andrei Rublev or Karen Achinov or, you know, like you've got these players in that second tier who seem to get stuck there kind of permanently. And Alex Demonor. Yeah, Demonor, I think would I would put in the third tier. <laughs> I love Demonor. I, I want to see him break through. The, the tennis podcast, they were, you know, they were talking about how, like, maybe he could be this year's uh, Cam Nori, you know, like a guy who's a little, like, like a little bit of a scrapper and not somebody who you ever think is going to win a slam, but like, you know, maybe he could sneak in masters win and maybe he goes deep, you know, has some nice runs at the slams. He's had a quarterfinal run, I believe, um, right. somewhere. Yeah, so but, yeah, he, he's, you're right. He doesn't have the weapons that we tend to associate with a grand slam champion or that top tier player. But that's why I like those players, you know, because to compete, it's the best. Yes. You know, they have to have, like, Demon always got, got speed. He's, you know, along with um, Mogwiz, he's known as the fastest player on, in tennis. And mm. so, you know, watching a play like that use the resources that they have, speed, style, scrappiness, is always fun. But yeah, sometimes he just gets blown off the court if that's if that's if everything's not cold. Yeah, it feels like he just doesn't have a shot against the the top top guys, and he's got a tough first round draw facing off with our favorite 
post-match celebrant Lorenzo Massetti. Um, <laughs> which, which I don't know. I mean, Massetti seems like he fell off pretty hard late in the year, but I, I haven't got a sense for his form. Have you have you seen his name in the news at all lately? No, not at all. I haven't thought about him. Yeah, I wonder if he played in any of the run-ups. Um, he played in Adelaide 1 and lost to Taro Daniel. Oh, that's not good. And... Yeah, that's not good. He played in the next-gen finals and won one match against Hugo Gaston. So I was just reading this book, this tennis book called The Circuit by Rowan Ricardo Phillips. Have you heard of The Circuit? What? Um, so the, it's this American poet. He's like a, he's a tennis tragic. He's, he's one of our kind, Matt. And he wrote this kind of lyrical memoir of watching the entire 2017 men's uh, ATP season. Um, and that was the year when Federer came back and won the Australian Open in that final against Rafa, that, you know, kind of unforgettable match and, uh, you know, went on to win Wimbledon. Rafa won the French after having not won for a few years. Um, you know, the year was really dominated by the two of them. But he, he also like dipped into like all these interesting side stories. Like he really, he wrote a lot about David Goffin who, you know, was one of my favorites for a while there. And that was the year he was really coming on strong, finished in the top 10, went to the ATP finals, got to the final match and lost to Grigor Dimitrov. But during that year, he was, you know, he's kind of, I think clay is his best surface. And in the French Open, he slipped on the tarp in the back of the court and uh, injured himself really badly, he had to have surgery, was out for a few months. So, and he called that section the Ballad of David Goffin, which, you know, not un not unlike... Uh, us the with the ballad of Daniil Medvedev. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, overall, actually, I was a little disappointed in the book. It like felt like it had these little moments of, of uh, you know, kind of dreamy reverie, you know, like uh, some really, there's like pockets of nice writing and then pockets of really clunky writing. Um, he tells this extended story about how clay courts were invented in the late 1800s and the uh the twin brothers who were kind of dominant on the on the men's tour at that time and it just didn't really click like he just you know the, the material like it's the sort of book i wanted to love so much it's exactly the sort of thing i'm looking for and yet it just it didn't mm. hit all the notes really um why was i talking about that <laughs> well, Gofan is playing Dan Evans in the first round, so I think uh, he's probably going to bow out. Although, you know, Evans, you never really know what you're going to get from our scrappy old hood rat friend. That is a that is a good first round matchup. That's a good first round matchup. I would like to watch that match. That is that is on the list with Musetti Dimonor. Absolutely, and yeah, like could Dimonor be a Cam Nori this year? Cam Nori is playing Sebastian Corda in the first round. Corda, somebody who had some really great results early last year and then kind of fell off. So, um, so, you know, there's some intrigue here, but it's, it feels like intrigue on the fringes, you know, it's like, could Demonor be like Nori? Could he get to the fourth round? Yeah. I mean, like seriously, after a certain point in time, you're just like, ah, there's only a handful of guys really in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, that is true, but I'm happy to be surprised. Like I'm, I'm forever optimistic that we are going to see, you know, some runs. And when we've got a draw of 128 players at the moment, I choose to just think of it as a, you know, a magical cauldron 
where anything could bubble up to the surface. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, if Djokovic doesn't play, I mean, Rafa's in the draw, and his draw looks... I mean, he's got now he's got some challenging people in his his section. I mean, he's, he could potentially play Kokonakis in the second round. Koki's been hot. This is the lowest we've ever seen him seated in a long time. What is he? What? Six or seven? Yeah, he he you know he missed a bunch of time last year, so he's he's dropped a bit. But he did have a great warm up. Um, yeah, he looked like himself, and he had such a nice run into that um that Melbourne tournament. He, yeah. he, like, he'd get a bye, then he'd get a walk over, and he had to win a few matches to win the whole tournament. Mm-hmm. Get his confidence, play a final on one labor arena, and win it against Chrissy, and, um, and then take this week off. Perfect for someone who just got COVID. I mean, it's maybe you could still, even though he's won a whole tournament, maybe he's still underdone, but you don't really know. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's... It's hard to imagine a lot of these guys actually beating him. He would he would have to show signs of really not being in form. And I, I think, you know, he's it doesn't look like there's much there yet. But we you know, we haven't seen a lot. Karen Hatchinov in the third round. Fourth round matchup, Hubie Hercotch, Karatsev, maybe. He's got those guys. Karatsev's in the final of Sydney against Yeah, against Andy Murray. Murray. Yeah, I would like to watch that. Shapovalov and Zverev might be headed for a fourth-round matchup, and the winner of that fourth-round match would be the person to potentially play Rafa. And I feel like if there's ever an opportunity for me to get on the Rafa train, it would be in a matchup against the Prince of Darkness. That might be something to look forward to, although I'm hopeful that Shapovalov could, you know, I've got that that Shapo optimism back, man. You know, he 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 could get through... Uh, Laszlo Jere, um, Holger Rune or Sunwoo Kwan, uh, Riley Opelka maybe in the third or Kevin Anderson. He's got, you know, he's got a nice draw. Um, and I feel like Zverev is somebody he can beat, but we'll see. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be great to see him beat Prince of Darkness. Yeah. Really anybody could beat the Prince of Darkness and I'd be, uh, I'd be pleased about it. Mil- Milman in the second round. Milman versus Darkness or Feliciano Lopez. It's going to be one of those two guys. Um, that'll be a fun second rounder potentially. But yeah, Zverev, Rafa, quarter. I mean, I would pick either of those guys to get to the semi in almost any any quarter. That's that's a tough quarter. So we'll see what happens there. I mean, Kokinakis potentially could trouble Nadal in this. that one. Yeah, absolutely. That's an that's a definitely a match I want to see. I would love to see Kokinakis beat Rafa. It it feels like Kokonakis show, still shows good form. Is it just that he still get, he gets hurt all the time? I mean, is this still the problem with him? Yeah, I just don't think he is very skinny looking person, <laughs> and he's had the injury injury problems over the years. And some people's style of game, uh, you know, is a bit, sometimes it's a bit too much for their body when he's on and on. But yeah, I'm not sure. He just hasn't had that consistency. But um, yeah, he's he's back. He's been back playing recently. He's looking the best he's he has for a while. Yeah, absolutely. So so we'll keep an eye on that. All right. Well, let's finish this draw then. Like um, yeah, let's let's blow through it. So the third quarter is uh, Cici Pass's quarter. Casper uh, Ruud is in the other 
half as the top seed. I think not not an easy road for Tsitsipas, but not the worst. He might have to play Dimitrov in the third, uh, Roberto Batista Agut in the fourth, or Taylor Fritz, or Francis TFO. I mean, these are winnable matches for him if he's healthy. But if he's not, you know, if he's still struggling with his form, that might be tricky. And then in the other half, you've got Andy Murray, who does really look like he's he might be back. But um, but also he's played all this grueling tennis to get to the final of Sydney this week, you know. And it's only two years ago that he was hobbling around in uh, in the old High Sense Arena, oh, I know. And he really pseudo retirement match. Because he because he's a little he's a step he's a step uh, slower these days. But he still plays that same, you know, the scrambling type of tennis. Yeah. He, he's, it looks even more taxing than normal one. Uh, and as you say, he's played a lot of tennis. He gets a wild card into this tournament and he plays someone he already beat in Sydney, Bashalash really. Yeah. Who is a, you know, he's sort of like an underling of darkness um, as far as abuse allegations go. Yes. And uh, he's also just a grim, uh, a grim personality, grim Nicky Basil, I like to call him. But then he gets Tara Daniel or Barrios Vera, and two qualifiers are playing each other opposite yep. him in the second round. So. so, but then it would be potentially Sinner in the third, which is pretty tough. But I'm not a I'm not a big uh, Sinner believer um, these days. But maybe I'm just counting him out because I think he's boring. That would be that would be a tough one for Murray to get through. Um, if he could get to the fourth round, he'd be playing either Casper Ruud or Demonor. I think that section of the draw feels weak to me. I think I think Ruud probably has a good chance at coming through there. Another player I'm just like completely uninterested in watching. I, I would love to see Demonor or Massetti come through and beat Ruud. That would be nice. So it's actually not a bad run. It's not bad for Mario if he can get past Bachelors. Yeah. Exactly. I think, right, that eighth of the draw is like a pretty good one. So for him to get to a quarterfinal is definitely something I could I could imagine seeing. It's that other part, like he would in a quarterfinal come up against uh, RBA or Steph, or I think those are those are probably the most likely opponents in the in the quarter there. We might see a Dimitrov 60 plus third round. Yep, that could be interesting as well. Just hope uh, Stefanos is is healthy because yeah, I mean, you know, looking at it from his perspective and as a major fan of his, I think it's a pretty good draw. I think seeing him in the semi, oh, and he could play like a Stefanos Murray rematch after their US Open drama this year would be lights out as a quarterfinal. That would be yeah, delightful. Yeah, because they got beef now. Yeah. Uh, Murray said he lost respect. Oh yeah. So it's that dead. would be, that'd be a great outcome. So I'll be, I'll be rooting for that. That would be a fun quarterfinal no doubt all right and then finally we get into the medvedev section medvedev rublev they uh they put the russians together um rublev and... playing my new guy barankis in the second round oh he's your new guy barankis well yeah he's the guy i found out oh yeah we had a whole thing about that yeah he wears the the jewelry where he is his friend who died is um right right so he's he told playing. that story. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. And there's also my other guy, Gasquet, has finally made it into a first round of the Australian Open. Injuries and 
he got COVID this time. I was like, I was like, you can never play this Australian Open again. Um, but he's playing Umber. Yeah, one. my guy, Ugo Umber. I'm a big uh, Umber fan these days. So Umber should should win that. Yeah, Gasquet is not looking. He's just step slower. And... Tough second round there for the winner of that match, though, against uh, possibly Jan Leonard Struff. Kyrgios Medvedev. Um, yeah, and Kyrgios Medvedev seems like it's probably happening in the second round. So that that would be an interesting one. I, I feel like Medvedev has a difficult draw. I mean, like a tricky draw, you know, because he could potentially start in the second round play Kyrgios Umber, who just uh, who just beat him, by the way, uh, in the ATP Cup. Um, Diego Schwartzman, either Rublev or Felix Ojealiasim, and then possibly Stefanos Tsitsipas or... Andy Murray is that crazy? Um, so it's it's not there aren't easy matches in there for Daniil, even though I think he's kind of odds-on favorite if uh, if Djokovic is out. Even with that, even with Djokovic in the draw, I think he's got a good chance of winning the tournament. But he's going to have to do some work, I think. Yep. Um, another matchup I like in this quarter is Cressy versus Isner, because mm-hmm. I know Cressy's been playing well. He got to that final against Rafa in Melbourne. And he's the only true serve volleyer on tour that I know of. So could be interesting to see that style against a server like Isla. Yeah, did he not just, did he beat him last week? I'm trying to find his, uh, his activity really quickly. Um, no, he beat Riley Opelka. Um, okay. That's, but he had to come through qualifying relevant. to get to the final of that of that particular tournament. I didn't realize that. He had to win six matches, including Opelka, Munar, Dimitrov, before uh, facing facing Rafa in the final and taking him to a first set tiebreak. So, yeah, Cressy's one to watch. I would love to see him uh, take down big old Johnny Isner. Me too. Yeah, there was something else in this quarter I was looking at. I mean... Um, Schwartzman, I think, is always dangerous, could get to the fourth round. Um, OJ Aliasim, Dan Evans. I feel like there's some really interesting players in you know, scattered throughout this section. But yep, Medvedev, Medvedev looming as a kind of dominant force right now. So yeah, wow. That was a lot of draw show. We have a serious draw show on our hands. Yes, we do. And we've also got <laughs> all that material from last week. I know. I, uh, it might not I, be very I, relevant or useful now. Yeah. Well, the thing, the part that I love from that discussion was our whole thing about um, player merch. Like there were a couple wardrobe uh, violations for um, Cannon and Opelka. Good to see Cannon coming back, playing some good tennis again. Yeah. She got um, back together with her dad as coach. So, um, yeah. Yeah, do you know who she who she lost to? I saw one of her matches. Barty, I think. I think it was Barty. Yeah. Oh, she lost to Barty. Oh, fair enough. So that's fine. You know, you take that loss. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's like beating those lower level players. You know, I mean, if Ken Kenan was Ken is a Grand Slam champion and a finalist, so she should yeah. be in the top ten. She should be competing with those top players. Yeah, and she's left Phila. She's left Phila. Yeah. And then uh, I saw a photo of her doing some sightseeing, and she's obviously got. Feel like shoes on, but like the logos are off it. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, she's she's being sponsored by Movement now, and she had like her first match back 
she had um, a movement shirt on, but it had like big movement um, strips down the side that says movement on it. And uh, the umpire pulled her up again on it. It's like, it's the logo is too big. You can't have like big writing. Um, so she got to wear that shirt. <laughs> she didn't have anything else to wear. So she got to wear it, but she was going to get a severe talking to after the dump. I was like, the supervisor's going to have a word with you after the match about your attire. That's so funny that that happened because there was another too big logo con- like thing this week as well with a Pelka. Did you see that? <laughs> no. No. He's, um, a bird shat on his hat while he's playing. <laughs> and so... <laughs> He went to the bench to change it, but I think the only one he had there was like a, cause he's also sponsored by Red Bull. He had a Red Bull hat with a massive <laughs> oh, no. Red Bull logo on the top and he put it on and went to go serve again. The umpire was like, no, nah, the logos are too big. And he was like, well, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to play with bird shit on my hat. Uh, this is the hat I have. What do you like? What do you want me to do? And the umpire was like, wipe it off with the towel. And he's like, no, I'm not playing with that on my hat. It was this whole thing. And then the, the ball kid tried to give him a hat and it was too small. <laughs> like, this is so stupid. Yeah. It is so dumb. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I didn't realize they had those rules outside of Wimbledon um, anymore. Like, get over it. Yeah. Um, like, ex- you guys can sell ads, like, wherever the fuck you want. And they can be gigantic. Yeah. They don't even have to actually exist. We can just superimpose them over people now. So, yeah, um, yeah, that seems like a real double standard. I mean, it's a, if you did have the no, uh, you did have no restrictions on logos, you would start to see... Um, you know, like the race car drivers have every ounce of their jumpsuit is got a yeah. um, a logo on it. You, you might start to see that, which would affect for me the, you know, the fashion aspect of, yeah. like, it is nice to see, you know, players in untainted garments. <laughs> but, but it's, but it's a choice that they make independently, right? Like they don't have to accept every, you know, every sponsorship deal they get i remember i feel like john isner is a guy who like you know he would just have like oh like here's like some golf like you know label and here's like a like a fish and tackle sporting company like he would just have like a bunch of like these really (laughs) shitty labels that nobody cares about yeah you know some of them have like five little tiny logos on their sleeves (laughs) and on the side of their hat (laughs) and it's like oh man but i was having this thought last night actually i was watching some english football and I was like, I wish tennis players had jerseys or like personalized, individualized clothes rather than just plain exercise active wear that they have. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's, yeah, Mar- uh, Molly and I both were like really taken with Maria Sakkari's outfit. She's been wearing this Adidas Marimekko. Mar- yeah, I didn't notice the fried egg until it was pointed out to me. Is it Marimekko? Is it really a Marimekko print? Yeah, it's a Marimekko like cross like cross deal. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and we th- but we thought it was strictly hers. Like we were like, ah, oh, it's really cool that she's gotten her own, you know, her own representation in the fashion sphere. But then we saw um, Elena Rybakina wearing it yesterday, and we're like, ah, well, I guess it's I guess it's just gonna make the rounds. You know, you get that situation where you have two fried egg players like playing against each other. It's crazy that it's only really the top three on the men's or women's side that have individualized things. Everyone else just has whatever that company is putting out for that season, you know. Yeah. But then even those top three don't do anything with it. They do something, but it's not like it's not like it says their name or says something really. It's just like a bit of a different yeah. design on the same color scheme that the company already has. 
especially in the team competitions, like you were talking about yeah. this last time, Matt, how like, you know, back in the day, Bjorn Borg was excited to get like the Swedish team jacket or whatever. And it's, it's like now you'll get matches where both like both players are wearing red like shirts and that's yeah you can you know like if you don't they can't even you can't even tell them apart yeah and within the team they they just because they all have to wear their own sponsor so all the shades of red are slightly different because they're all with different sponsors it's like come on so this is a joke <laughs> they can't get the shades of red right yeah yeah, and it would be nice to have their names on their backs, like in other yeah. sports, so casual players know who they're watching. Like even just for merch. Yes, for merch. And even for merch sales, like I would wear stuff from my totally. favorite tennis players if it was if it had their name and a number, like something that was like their shirt, not just active wear. Yeah, absolutely. Like I was thinking that it would be like a a cool tennis tragic thing to do to like print our own merch for players. Yeah, you know, like you know, like we we. We print the the like friendly ogre Riley Opelka shirt, or you we know, send like, him we just a, like send him a shirt and see if he wears <laughs> send it. Him in an extra, extra, extra large. <laughs> well, there's like yeah. there's appetite for it because every now and then it pops up. On I don't know if this is a real shirt or not, but I think they did it. Like Fila did the Serbot shirt uh, uh, for it's like remember they had that and it was for Opelka and Nizna, okay, but mainly Opelka, and that was cool. Everyone on Twitter was like, "Yeah, I love this," and everyone on Twitter is also like, "Nike should do a boy shirt for Ruby." Lev, you know that sound he makes it's like his thing now boy boy if i was like they should put that on a shirt everyone would go nuts for it and there's so much support behind it but they don't do it cool shit like that yeah like when you go to a tournament and you go to the merch place and it's it's just tournament stuff yeah you know like maybe like adidas will have its own store so you can buy the label but like yeah it'd be so cool if you could go find your like favorite players stuff and like represent yeah. for them i mean maybe that yeah. maybe they feel like there's just too many players who wouldn't get the like who wouldn't be able to like make sales or something obviously rafa roger and novak have it um again but even then it's like it's just block color of nike so, you know the rafa right. shows it's like a black nike shirt or something it's like cool man <laughs> yeah it, it's a you're right it's a business logo it's not like a fun like fan shirt like like you how you yeah. go to a concert and you get like a cool poster that's totally yeah. unique that's made by a local artist that says something like i have this you know miami open poster that i love that's like an artifact of the event that i went to yeah. you know it's it's a piece of art it's not just you know some formal tennis bullshit totally yeah I think they, they, the manufacturers just want to sell a bunch of stuff en masse. And so they go lowest common denominator. They make all the players wear it. So they maximize the advertising and then, you know, they appeal. If you start getting this, is this, I guess this is how like, um, a big company thinks, you know, if you start getting too nuanced, then you, you have to crunch numbers. How useful is that? To, you know, is it? Yeah. That you start, yeah, you're you're thinking more like an artist, which I love, but they're thinking like just how many shirts can we sell? Yeah, but I know I know what you mean. Obviously, I like that's the thing, but I think they're underestimating how much more merch they would buy if there was individualized merch. I think that's underestimated. I yeah, I agree, and I think that also, but I think it's kind of the responsibility of the players, and I don't think they have yeah, an outlet totally. for it. I don't know if I told you guys this, but it, there was a time about, I don't know, probably six, nine months ago where I, I was thinking about, I saw that Jessica Pagula was minting an NFT collection and I was like, uh, maybe I should buy a Jessica Pagula NFT. 
Um, which is, you know, ridiculous because Jessica Pagula and she's not a person who has a lot of fans. I mean, she's a good player. Um, but it's not like, she's not an exciting personality or somebody I would like be really eager to represent. It's funny that somebody like Jessica Pagula, who's a billionaire, she, you know, her, her, her parents like own the Buffalo bills would go and try to mint an NFT collection rather than like selling merch, like sell Uh some Pagula t-shirts, like come up with a fun nickname, like make some cool art, you know, like. I, yeah. I think yeah, you, fans really love the I mean the fashion aspect and the history of tennis, and they really they love all the aspects of the game. But I'm not, I don't think players always do. You know, players can often be pragmatic about their right. tennis playing. Like the, you know, Thanasi Kokonakis, he was like he he didn't have a shirt sponsor and he wore Kmart t-shirts. He was like, I don't want any bullshit. I don't want any. I don't want to think about clothes. Whatever's feels good and comfortable will do the job i think they're few and far between the players that really care about that he's also wearing a dangly cross earring though so he does care about fashion a bit i think if he had some input of like a merch outlet he'd be like fuck yeah i'm doing that (laughs) yeah right yeah you're right i mean like if if there was that outlet if if they were given more time to use their own creativity but but I also think there is there is a there's a pragmatic thing about you know don't that's probably been ingrained in them from early days of coaching, all the superfluous stuff that's a distraction, on your journey to becoming a champion. Don't think about that stuff. I don't want you to be thinking about how good you look on court and how good your shirt is or what design you're wearing because that's a distraction on your game. So don't. I mean I yeah. I love that stuff. I I wouldn't care. I would just you know, spend way more time thinking about what I'm going to wear on court than, than doing my practice or whatever, because that's just how I roll. Um, yeah, um, right. I do the but, same when I'm like going for runs. Like I'm, I'm putting together an outfit. I think, I, I mean, I look kind of ridiculous, <laughs> but like I'm putting it together. You know, this is an alternate pre- presentation of myself to the world. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of when Novak Djokovic was still kind of up and coming, his dad would famously wear these, these shirts that were kind of like screen printed with like pictures of Novak on them. So he was wearing these like Novak Djokovic t-shirts and also recent, more recently the Tsitsipas camp, they all had like the cartoon Tsitsipas uh, face masks, which were really cool. And I was like, how do you get these? You know, like I would wear the ridiculous, you know, over the top <laughs> Novak t-shirt and well, maybe not now um, or, yeah. you know, or the Tsitsipas face mask. But like, what if he wore the Tsitsipas like cartoon character on his on his shirt or something? You know, I mean, this is the sort of thing also that like gets kids into the game, you know, like the players showing their personality, like having another way of like connecting with yeah. with the individuals. I guess there are a few actually, now that I'm thinking, they just don't wear them on court. Like Stan Vorinko has Stan the Man shirts and Djokovic, Serena and Rafa, they all have t-shirts not for on court but just like they have serena and a picture of her hitting a ball or something like an outline so they have those kind of things but they're all a bit yeah plain jane i think venus yeah. has her 11 line but it's not my favorite she has her own label right yeah yeah that's yeah, different yeah. that's different. the way the that's sisters like, are big on the fashion andy murray andy murray has one too but it's also just like nothing it's just more active where there's nothing. I think we're talking about more like personalized player thing rather than them having another revenue income income stream. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Venus one, she does try and do make it a bit more um, 
fashion focused rather than just active wear. Mm. You know, there's mm. there's different trims and and cuts and lines and designs. It treats it more like a fashion label than just active wear. Yeah, yeah. That regularly, like I've been watching a lot of NBA lately, and um, you know, if when you watch the commercials during an NBA game, they're regularly promoting NBA merch, and there's like, you know, official merchandise like resellers or whatever and like buying the jersey for your team or like but not just for the team for your favorite player is such a big part of those sports and it's like yeah that's kind of what i'm talking about yeah i think i think if if we showed up at a slam like wearing some like you know some shirt for one of our favorite players that we made ourselves we would get so much we'd probably get on camera with that shit you know it's like Cause it's just this weird hole in the game, maybe because it's kind of, it is a little stuffier and more formal in all these ways, but yeah, yeah we should do that. Like I'm surprised Curios hasn't made a basketball Jersey for himself. The thing yeah. about basketball is they're all, they've got the advantage of one sponsor Nike at the moment um, and Jordan, which is the same company. They have the monopoly on all the, all the jerseys. So, right. And they have to wear jerseys. So and and so that means everything the that that yeah so all the the all the players are little businesses themselves and they all have their they're all right. trying to fight for their so if yeah there was one a clothing sponsor for the entire tennis world yeah you could start doing different things but then then you also lose the spice of having you know we we actually like seeing what Nike is going to do this year with this year's Australian Open connection and what Adidas does and like... Yeah, I don't think that having one brand is the thing. Like with football, English football, your player, they have different people who make yeah, their jerseys, team, but they all end up... Football, they all have different ones. They all end up having different jerseys, but they all are still jerseys and they all everyone can still buy the jersey for their favourite player, you know what I mean? Like it's still open to every manufacturer to do it. Yeah, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive either. Like, I think yeah. it's just, it's like an add-on. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't necessarily, like, I don't play tennis. So, um, these days, so I don't need a ten. I don't need tennis gear. Um, yeah. like I want some cool t-shirts that are like, yeah. that, you know, that represent my love for the game without being like totally corny and dry. Yeah. So, but English football and NBA, the two examples that were mentioned, they are bigger sports than tennis. Yeah, maybe so. Um, I, you know, English football, I mean, football generally, they have this long tradition of putting the sponsor front and center on the shirt, which I despise. And you're starting to see it creep into American sports now, like the NBA players, but like the teams can have a sponsor and, but they just get a little yeah, have space. Just, yeah. Like it's the whole, like, though, yeah, it's creeping in. We have, um, we just got our first pro uh, football team here in Austin, uh, soccer football, not American football. What are they called? Uh, Austin FC. Um, so yeah, get excited. Um, but they have like, they have a cool logo and they're, um, I guess they kind of like, have, you know, they sort of have a nickname Los Verdes and, um, but they're sponsored by Yeti. And so if you want to wear an Austin FC uh, yeah. jersey Promoting you're just yeti. wearing a giant yeti ad and it's like i don't fucking i'm not down with these 300 coolers like this is bullshit i like why would i it like gets in the way of me wanting to like yeah root for the team yeah. yeah yeah <sighs> yes capitalism is the problem right matt <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> obviously and always yeah so yeah, any 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 last words before we go, Matt? Um, I'm putting you on the spot. 
Okay. Um. Uh, Trungaliti to win the tournament. Um. Radika in a in a Radikanu s run, having won three rounds of qualifying. <laughs> Will he drop a set? Yeah, he'll drop lots of sets. The healing. Um. <laughs> It will win out of the tournament. And if that doesn't happen, um, well, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, then some something else is amazing. Something, something is going to happen. Okay. I think there's just there's too much charge around the whole Djokovic stuff for this to be a predictable tournament. Right. Something crazy is going to happen. Maybe, maybe Robin Anderson, the 27-year-old qualifier, will... Find Welcome. her way into the into the fourth round, beating Sam Stozer in her final match, sending her into retirement, battling yeah. past Pavli Pavliachenkova in in a three set epic. She'll encounter a Petra Kvitova who just sprays errors all over the place and kind of defeats herself, and then suddenly, you've got the unknown, unheralded Robin Anderson in the fourth round against Iga Swiatek. Ooh, or maybe it'll be. Dasha's Kesakini, who's been kind of hot lately. But yeah, Robin Anderson. Robin Anderson and Matthew Trinkalidi. Robin Anderson, I, I, yeah, those are our picks, the official tennis tragic picks for the Australian Open. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the tennis tragic thanks you for listening. All correspondence and feedback can be directed to tennis tragic pod at gmail.com and our instagram is at tennis tragic pod <laughs>